Hi, this is Robert Colbert coming to you from Malibu and thanking you for listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson, welcoming you to this week's edition of TV Confidential Radio Talk Show about television. And welcome back, Charles Fox, in our second hour. Charles Fox, the Grammy Award winning and Tony Award winning composer, who, among other things, is the man behind the themes of Happy Days, The Love Boat, Laverne Shirley, Wonder Woman, and many other great. TV shows from the 1970s, as well as such classic songs as I Got a Name, Ready to Take a Chance Again, and Killing Me Softly with his song. There is a new documentary coming out later in 2023 that not only chronicles the life and career of Charles Fox, but celebrates the power of live music and how live music connects people and bridges cultures from all over the world. We'll talk about that and more when Charles Fox joins us in our second hour. We'll be able to stay tuned for that. In the meantime, this coming Monday, August 28th, marks the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, the historic day in 1963 in which more than 20,000 Americans of every age, race, and religion came to Washington, D.C. to support the passage of the Civil Rights Bill and to hear Dr. Martin Luther King deliver his now iconic I Have a Dream speech. With that in mind, Phil Grace will join us later on this hour for an encore presentation of the Sounds of Lost Television that features audio highlights of how both network television and network radio covered the March on Washington. We hope to stay tuned for that as well. In the meantime, we will open up our first hour by playing part two of a conversation that began last week with Gregory Orr. Greg Orr, son of William T. Orr, the original head of television production at Warner Brothers Pictures and the grandfather of Warner Brothers co-founder Jack L. Warner. Calendar year 2023 marks the 100th anniversary of the founding of Warner Brothers Pictures. And to mark the occasion, Greg has just released the director's cut of his 1993 documentary, Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul, an unvarnished look at a founding father of the American film industry, all told through Warner Brothers film clips, personal home movies, exclusive interviews with such luminaries as Shirley Jones, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., Pat Buttram, Sheila McRae, and Debbie Reynolds, and a whole lot more. The director's cut of Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul, is available in full length for the first time ever and includes more than 40 minutes of new material, all in high definition, including Jack Warner's controversial 1947 testimony before the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Plus, it re-examines the infamous stock sale, the 1956, that resulted in uh, Jack Warner becoming sole head of Warner Brothers, but also caused a rift between his brother Harry and his brother Abe that was never, never healed. All of that is in the director's cut of Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul by Gregory Orr, now available, streaming on demand, all major platforms, also available on DVD, wherever DVDs are sold, including MovieZing.com, Z-Y-N-G, MovieZing.com. Use promo code JACK through the end of August, and you'll receive a 10% discount off your purchase. MovieZing, Z-Y-N-G, MovieZing.com. As we pick up the conversation from last week, we were talking to Greg about the Brothers' early roots in Youngstown, Ohio, before they came to Hollywood to make their mark in the motion picture business. One of the many businesses that uh, they launched before they eventually, well, Jack and I forget which other brother was came, came west, and then Harry operated things in New York, if I remember correctly. Jack and Sam were sent west to open a film exchange in San Francisco. That also led to their first little movie they made, a baseball comedy, 
And my, my father tells the story, which he heard from Jack, that they rented a stadium and, and had the players and the cameraman had shown up and they filmed it over the day and the cameraman had forgotten to take the lens cover off the camera. <laughs> In those good. days, you didn't have direct view right through the lens. Yeah. So you just stood next to the camera and cranked it and hadn't realized. So they had to re find another $5,000 and remake the picture. But so you learn, you learn the hard way. You learn by doing. But uh, yeah, it was Sam and Jack who finally got away from their older brothers in the East, where they'd had the film exchanges in Norfolk, Virginia, and in uh, Pittsburgh and New York, and opened up shop in San Francisco and then Los Angeles. And uh, you know they were off the races in terms of being people who distributed films, and then started making films. One of the other takeaways I got from watching uh, Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul, Greg, is one of the reasons why Warner Brothers took off, both in the go during the Golden Age of Hollywood and during the Golden Age of Television, is they had an uncanny knack for knowing what the public wanted. And as you point out, I, I, for I forget who told this to you in the movie, but as you point out in the movie, their uncanny knack for knowing what the public wanted, that stems from the many different businesses they had before they hit pay dirt with the movie studio. They were very hands-on people and they knew their customers. That's what I discovered is that because they'd grown up in the Midwest poor, working poor, but they wanted to be businessmen. They tried their hand at everything from a bowling alley to ice cream cone making machine to a small store to a bicycle shop. So they were businessmen, but they were dealing with the public in their businesses. So they had, the public, the general public, was very much in their DNA. They understood these people, the average American, if you want to call them that. And so when they got into picture making, they understood a bit, well, what's an audience like? Because that's what I like. And I understand if something's too slow or that story doesn't make sense or what titillates somebody or what's an exciting kind of story or what's a romantic story, because I think they filtered all that especially my grandfather, filtered it through those customers who would walk through their doors and all those shops. And it's their generation for those for quite a while. And then, of course, the generation changes. And that's where the adaptation is required. You know, Jack Warner approving Warren Beatty, making Bonnie and Clyde. Warren Beatty and his generation are very different yes. from the generation. Jack Warner, a completely different kind of guy and experiences. And yet he could see enough like, all right, I'll okay. Uh, you know, even though he doesn't get the movie at first, he's he's smart enough to say, hmm, there's something here. Go ahead and make it. And it may be he saw in Beatty a younger version of himself because, as we mentioned earlier, Jack in particular always saw himself as an underdog because he was the youngest, because he felt, okay, he ha he, he needed to break out on his own, escape the shadow of his three other brothers more than one person in the documentary said he was a character in every sense of the word. He was a rebel. At least he saw himself as a rebel. So I'm guessing, you know, Bonnie and Clyde Warren Beatty, they may not have catered to his taste originally, but he saw something. And, and I'm guessing he recognized a quality in Beatty in particular that reminded him of himself. He respected people who stood up to him, who had passion, uh, and when Betty Davis sued, the, well, she didn't, she was sued by the studio because she went off to uh, England to make movies and try to break her contract. Uh, when she came back, she lost that case and had to come return to Warner Brothers. Jack respected her much more and gave her better parts and also increased her salary. So I, my understanding from my father is that if you stood up to him, you know, without insulting him, he started to look at you 
in a, in a better light. And he, he always respected the people, according to my father, who had made a name for themselves outside of Warner Brothers. And then when they came to the studio, they, they hadn't required his help to become stars or producers or directors. They had made it, in a sense, on their own. And he respected that a lot. I'll give you another example of that. Uh, when I was doing my Maverick book, uh, I spent a lot of time with Roy Huggins. And one of the stories he told me was this may have been before James Garner filed suit against the studio. But James Garner proved himself not to be a typical Warner Brothers television star because he had that star quality that made him stand out. And as, as has been documented in, in, in many other cases, Jim began to leverage that as much as he could, even though he was still confined by a studio contract. And Huggins told me this story where Garner's name came up. I mean, he was, and I don't remember, but somehow he's in, he was in a meeting with Warner, with Jack Warner and your dad. And somehow Garner's name came up. And at the mention of Garner, JL went into this Tommy Lasorda type of obscenity laced tirade. And then he stopped and said, wait a minute, I like that guy. Because even though Garner was proving himself to be a pain in the ass as far as Jack's bottom line, he respected Garner because he stood up to him. We felt that way about Jimmy Cagney, too. He called him a professional against her. <laughs> so you could argue with him. My understanding is that he was in the talent business. He's in the people business. Yeah. So you're making judgments about people. And when somebody shows a certain spark and creativity, and you have to have a track record. He says, huh, that might be good in front of a camera or behind a camera. So that's the judgments he's making all day long about people and whether or not they can be uh, good movie makers, TV makers. And Garner certainly was. Even though, I mean, Garner hated being there, from what I understand, yeah. and uh, did not have nice things to say about my father. But he did say something nice about Jack Warner. I think that, you know, he could make a decision right then and there. And Garner had asked for something at some point. And Jack agreed to maybe get rid of a director he didn't like or something. And Jack decided right then, okay, we'll get somebody else. And he did appreciate that power put to use immediately. Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul, now available on DVD, includes more than 40 minutes of new material, all in high definition. It's about 90 minutes, an hour and 40 minutes in length. It has never been seen in this form in its entirety in the United States, but you can see it right now, all major streaming platforms as well as on DVD through moviezing.com, Z-Y-N-G, moviezing.com. Use promo code JACK through the end of August, and you'll receive a 10% discount off your purchase, moviezing.com. It will also soon be available on amazon.com, and wherever else DVDs are sold. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. One more item. Summertime is in full swing, and if you have dry skin, you know what happens when the weather gets warmer. More visible lines and dullness. Fortunately, our friends at Ibu Beauty can help. Their Super Duo Serum and Moisturizer is all you need this summer for the perfect glow. Check them out, ibubeauty.com. That's Y-I-B-U, beauty.com, or at Ibu Beauty on Instagram. Use customer code Ibu50 now at checkout and receive 50% off your first order. Hi, this is Shirley Jones, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Gregor, the writer, producer, and director of Jack L. Warner, our guest this hour. Let's talk about your dad, Bill Orr. 
And let's talk a little bit about early days of Warner Brothers television. Now, Bill had a hand in just about everything when it came to the early Warner Brothers television shows. You mentioned he was very close with a lot of the writers. He, he oversaw the production. The one exception was maybe the two years when Roy Huggins did Maverick. Bill recognized, okay, Roy needs to be a little autonomous there. But other than that, he had his hand on everything. And I understand it was your dad who came up with the idea that every Warner Brothers show should have its own theme song. My father loved music. He had grown up going to lots of plays in New York. His mother took him everywhere and to jazz clubs. So he understood show business on that level from a very young age. He had become an actor. He came out to Los Angeles at age 17 uh, to try his hand at acting and took classes and became a model a little bit. And then finally he got a Warner Brothers contract. Uh, had been in a, in a stage review right before that called Meet the People that was a bit like the Saturday Night Live of its day. Uh, Luella Parsons had hosted it, and they would riff on, uh, you know, things of the day and do songs, and do, and he did imitations. And there'd be skits, and it was one of the few live shows in Los Angeles. So everybody went to see him, uh, see the show, and so he became known by that and ended up with a Warner Brothers contract uh, where he was an actor, and then the war came along, and he ended up enrolling, enrolling, enlisting in the Army Air Corps, uh, getting a part yeah. in the Army Air Corps, right, or actor talk, his role. And uh, he ended up making training films during the war at uh, the old Hal Roach Studios in Culver City, which became Fort Roach. Uh, and they turned out about 300 training films for the U.S., the nascent U.S. Air Force. And Ronald Reagan was the post-adjutant, and uh, all kinds of Hollywood people came through there to make films in uniform. They had enlisted, and you could go right into that unit from a soundstage with a little bit of tra you know, basic training. And that's how he got some executive experience, uh, being the post-publicity officer and, uh, and overseeing some of those training films and so forth. So after the war, he wanted to return to acting, but it wasn't going well. And his new father-in-law, he had met my mother, Jack Warner's stepdaughter, and they got married just after the war and moved to New York, and it wasn't going so well for my father. It was for my mother. She was acting in plays, and his father-in-law invited him and said, oh, come on, you're being a bum back there. Come to work here at the studio. You can walk around and see who's showing up on time and report. I said, my father said, oh, that's great. Someone's going to drop a lamp on my head one day. You know, I'm sneaky. I'm snitching on people. He said, why don't I have another job, idea for a job? Why don't I read through all the scripts and see which little roles could be used for our new young actors, you know, people just under contract, supporting characters, and try to, you know, usher those people along. So he really started looking at the talent while being an assistant to my grandfather. So he got to a, gr a great ground floor education in being running a studio and being a movie maker. And when the time came for Warners to get into television, there was nobody else really capable of understanding filmmaking at that level. And uh, the man they'd put in initially had come out publicity. He just wasn't doing the job, I understand. And uh, the shows were supposed to be on the air. But we can talk about that in a moment too. But that's that's how he got to the place where suddenly he was gonna be assigned to take over the new TV department. He was also, your dad, well-versed in the art of diplomacy. And I say this, I go back, and this is something Roy Huggins told me in that it was no mystery. When Warner Brothers decided to go on to television, they, they said, okay, we'll do this, 
only if we can take properties that we already own and just adapt them into television. And that way, going back to we keep costs under control and we maintain control. It's still a Warner Brothers property. And that was a good business model to go in initially. It turned out it, it, it cost them for reasons, you know, we, we may get into later in the conversation. But one of the mandates, and this came down from JL, which is we will not pay an outside writer or created by credit. We will, we will develop a show only if it's based on our own. And that was the hand that your dad had to play. And Huggins said, okay, even though Bill had a difficult job because he had to, he answered to Jack, he was always diplomatic about it, and he was always a gentleman. Well, that's nice to hear. He certainly had an easygoing quality and a light sense of humor, and he was comfortable with actors and talent. He really, I once asked him, I said, what, was, what about your job really pleased you the most? What is it about your career that you remember with great fondness? He said, finding great talent and putting it in the right place. So he was another people person, a different style than his father-in-law. But uh, he had he knew everybody in Hollywood. Uh, so already there's a comfort there in talking to people. He's not insecure, which I think is great for an executive to have. He doesn't have anything to prove with talent. And though though he's not paying them much, so they had legitimate complaints at some point. Yeah. It was like, oh, my God, we're working for $300 a week or something. You know, they're, they're, or seven fifty. Um He's trying to keep the costs low. I think they got, I think ABC paid about $80,000 for an hour show starting off. And yeah, so squeezing the pennies. My father told me a story once. And what, one of the things that is remarkable about the TV division at that time is that it was, there were very few people running it, unlike today. Yeah. There was one producer on the show and, a sto- and one story editor. And that's kind of it. I mean, obviously an editor and all those other crew. But there wasn't a, a big hierarchy. And at some point, he's looking over the budget of a show, and there's, I don't know, $100 in there for grapefruit <laughs> as a prop. He said, I don't want to pay $100 for grapefruit to be in a fruit stand on the set. So he put out a word to everybody to bring in their old grapefruit from breakfast. There are half grapefruits from breakfast, and that's what we'll do to put in the thing. So that I think he enjoyed doing those things, you know, that somehow it would please his father-in-law and keep the budget down and... Uh, and all that. So he was really managing a new form of uh, a new system yeah. of delivering uh, TV films, uh, is what they used to call them. They're sort of telefilms, mm-hmm. not even TV shows. They were short films, and how to make them for for a budget for a third place network, ABC, that really needed the content. And uh, you're right about that. I've I've seen interviews with my father. He said we're not doing any outside packages. We own these shows. The sponsor doesn't own them. This is the way we want the model. We will finance them, and ABC will pay us at some point for the shows. But there are shows. And the other thing, and this is, it started with Maverick, but it it became part of the style for all Warner Brothers shows during the ten years your dad ran the television division. Is um, Warner Brothers really perfected the art of the hour-long show um, in terms of production. And again, this, this goes back to recognizing a need and adapting. In the case of Maverick, uh, Huggins realized, okay, we're not making these quick enough in order to meet our, air, our, our, our network air date. So in order to stay on schedule and keep it within the budget, we're going to shoot two shows at once. And so in the early days, that was revolutionary. And that became the standard for all the Warner Brothers shows, and that's all part of your dad's legacy as well. 
Well, they brought in, I was looking through the roster of uh, credits, and they brought in people who had tremendous experience in movies. They gave chances to new people. Robert Altman got his start at Warner Brothers doing mm -hmm. films. To um, Richard Serafian did The Gallant Men and some others. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they did trust new talent and gave them a shot. Um, but people were experienced writers. Uh, there were some people who came in from radio. My father told me that the radio writers were the most problematic because they had a lot of exposition. They were always describing everything. Yeah. I'm going to the door now, Sam. <laughs> There's the door. And stop calling him Sam. Just say I'm <laughs> doing something. Like, you know, remind people. Yeah. So that took a little training. But, um, yeah, they made, I don't know, 39 shows a year starting off on some of these, which is insane now. You know, when when people do eight or ten or twelve shows a year or something, so uh, you know, six days to shoot a show, and and where do you find the talent? So no, he was doing casting. He saw all the footage that was shot. And as we say, he pretty much left his mark on every aspect of television production during Warner Brothers' first ten years in television. That would be Bill Orr, Bill's son, Gregory Orr is our guest this hour. Gregory Orr writer, producer, and director of Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul. We'll play more of our conversation with Greg at the end of our second hour. We'll be able to stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we'll take a quick time out. Then Phil Grace will join us for The Sounds of Lost Television next on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at tvconfidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.